somewhere in this little heart was the desire to be good at this and was the desire to discipline myself at the craft of it, at the exactitude of how challenging it can be to, to work through the skill set of storytelling, of writing, all these things. But then, of course, past that is what is the effect of that purpose. When snaking around the bend of the bookstore line at the National Book Festival this year, I recognized Daniel Nairi walking by. We struck up a conversation, and once he met my son, Cassius, we took an erudite turn to talking about nominative determinism, or the theory that your name can determine who you are or become. It was a deep conversation, and Daniel had my whole family wrapped after just a few moments of discussion. See, even when discussing facts, he's a storyteller. Before fleeing Iran, Daniel went by his Persian name, Khosru, and when I looked up its meaning, I found it to be king. You'll hear in this episode that Daniel is the king of storytelling. You simply cannot ask him a question without getting a story for an answer. For many years, Daniel was a beloved publisher, but he's best known for his Prince award-winning memoir, Everything Sad is Untrue, and more recently, for the many assassinations of Samir, the seller of dreams. See, even each of his titles is a tale within itself. In this episode, Daniel recounts how a roadside storyteller became one of his major influences. He warns us that our most precious memories may not actually be ours at all, and he encourages us to try our hand at the dinner game he plays in an effort to remystify the world. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and illustrators about ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for giveaways at The Reading Culture Pod, you can also subscribe to our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter. All right, on to the show. Let's start with Iran. Can you tell me a bit about growing up there and specifically what was reading and storytelling like for you during those years? So yeah, I was born in Tehran, Iran, and but raised in Isfahan. From zero to five, that was where my you know life was. Um, and as you can imagine, if you're a teacher, zero to five is just coming up on kindergarten. It was an era of my life that I remember almost completely without writing and reading, right? I hadn't learned that just yet. And there were some disruptions around that time. So yes, I was born and raised in Isfahan, but my mother converted to Christianity when I was five. And so we had to escape as refugees. As a result, my dad chose to stay. He's Muslim. And so him and his family and my mother's family on that side, they're all in Iran. And so every memory I have of them is from that window of time. And as a result, all my memories are memories of sort of what I guess scholars would say is the oral tradition. Like I remember sitting on my uncle's lap and listening to stories. I remember going to, you know, this one individual's house in the village where my grandfather lived and he was famous as a storyteller. And we would sit, you know, on the carpet in front of him, drink tea and listen to him tell stories. I was in that age where I was ravenous for that sort of thing. Bedtime stories, TV too, right? But all of those were the ways that I was taking in the world around me but not in writing and reading. I hadn't learned that yet. Mm, right, so storytelling played a bigger role. Can we go back and just talk a little bit about that storyteller? Can you tell me more about him? 
actually I have a picture book coming out about this experience because it was such an important one in my in my memory as a kid. So we lived in Isfahan. Um, Isfahan is like a, is a city. I mean, it's an ancient city. It's been around. I mean, you know, I was just recently writing a book about the Silk Road in the fourth century. There's just a, there's a lot of culture there. There's a lot of history there. But outside of the city is an area called Ardistan, and that's much more rural. It was a we might call a village, right? And in Ardistan was where my father's father, my grandfather, had his farm and his land. It was always a long drive. It was always kind of, you know, in the summer months, it would be really hot. And we had one of those really old giant cars. I guess I always thought of it as like a big adventure to go out there. But halfway on, when you were getting to Azistan, there was a gentleman and he and his wife, in my story, I name him Abbas. So Abbas and his wife always wanted kids, but they weren't able to have them. And so Abbas was, had this just really joyful, childlike spirit. And he would use, and it was very, also very handy. And he would use like scrap metal to build like toys for kids, right? So um, imagine like a, kind of a, you know, rough shot, but like a scrap metal teeter-totter or a seesaw and that sort of thing. And his big, the big achievement had been that he had made a, a Ferris wheel out of scrap metal. So for me, it was this like Ferris wheel in the desert that you would go to and all the kids would beg him to ride it. It's the kind of Ferris wheel that you have to like hand crank, right? I mean, it's just for like little kids to kind of go in a small circle up and down. Nothing like, you know, the World's Fair, Ferris <laughs> wheel, um, nothing like that. But it was magical to me, right? I, it's, you know, nothing short of, you know, outside of grocery stores or delis, you see these like little horses yeah. that you can put a quarter in and ride. It's great. Yeah. So we would go there. And I, but Abbas always kind of was known as telling these just like incredible stories. And so I, the one I remember best is a fairy tale that I've, I've finally tracked to like the Romanian, Hungarian kind of region, like Russo-Persian space. There's, you know, north of Iran has a lot of this kind of cultural crossover. He would tell stories like that. And he would, I mean, he would also sort of tell the classics, right? Which to us were all the Arabian Nights classics, the Aladdin and Alibaba and the 40 Thieves and Sinbad, any of these kinds of things. So storytelling, I, you know, I go back to him a lot. I go back to the way we tell stories and stories within stories, which is how the Arabian Nights works. It's the way I kind of tell a lot of my stories, if not all of them. A lot of that comes from sitting in that little uh, courtyard listening. While Daniel was enchanted with oral storytelling, his relationship with the written word was less magical. Arriving in America, just learning to read, he was introduced to books mostly as a pragmatic means to pick up a new language and to fit in quickly. One of the ways I learned English was that we went to the library and, you know, we had a 35 picture book limit. So we stack them high and take them home and I'm reading picture books. And for me, reading was always coupled with language acquisition, with trying to understand what is going on. Obviously, the motivation is any kid on a playground wants to know what's going on, wants to be able to play, wants to engage with the other kids. And so because there was no ESL program, it was left to the books to do that. So reading was always like a very strong tool in my head. It was very much a, a way to enter into everything from like friendships on a playground to better grades in school. It wasn't until the sixth grade that a book grabbed Daniel's attention with the same electricity that he remembered from that village storyteller. 
the first time I discovered that a written book could have the experience of that storytelling was actually kind of later. It was when I started reading Terry Pratchett and things like that, like fairy tales or later on, it was a surprise. It was, I was like, oh, this is that. Yeah. What did you read by Terry Pratchett? Oh, I can tell you in the sixth grade, I read a short story by Terry Pratchett that I don't even think like Pratchett scholars, Pratchett fans would call his best short story, but it was my first experience with him and it blew my mind. It's called Troll Bridge. It's only about nine pages long and it's about one of his characters. He has a character um, that is a lot like a Conan the Barbarian type. He's a barbarian, but the funny thing, because Terry Pratchett is hilarious, is that he's he's very, very old. He's kind of in his 90s and he's uh, needs to retire. His bones are always aching. He's not this sort of like vision of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his, um, in his prime. And he has a horse who's a very sarcastic horse and he talks to him. They're like a buddy cop, buddy barbarian kind of story. Anyway, it's a short story about him and he and the horse are freezing as they're walking through this winter um, night. They come across a bridge where a troll jumps out. And instead of, you know, the classic thing that should happen, which is the troll demands payment to cross the bridge or they fight or whatever, they end up sitting on the bridge together and just kind of commiserating because the world ain't what it used to be. And trolls are, you know, the business is real bad ever since his brother-in-law built a much bigger, nicer bridge down the way. And so now he's not really doing well. And they kind of start, you know, having this... um classic old men get off my lawn kind Nostalgia. of talk. Uh, the <laughs> yeah. horse is just rolling his eyes the whole time and they strike <laughs> up a friendship. There was something so disarmingly funny about it. It's it's almost all dialogue. I couldn't believe, you know, to me, fantasy was the serious place where hobbits and Tolkien and all these things were. And, right, and right, he right. was just completely zigging where everybody was zagging. And so I just, I fell in love with the idea that you could be that funny in a story. You know, great storytellers, I just realized, I'm thinking of this like right now, are kind of like stand-up comedians in the sense that they kind of do crowd work. There's a lot of comedy built into sometimes into storytelling, especially the way I remember it. Like there would be like teasing of the little kids and the voices, of course, are always kind of charming and funny. Sometimes there's like a recurring joke that in some ways is like at the expense of one of the kids sitting there. Like there's a lot happening in the space when oral stories are being told. And it's almost always really charming and funny. It's That's the purpose of this kind of stand-up. A lot of what I had read was kind of particularly sincere or serious or things like that because I loved fantasy. Terry Pratchett was the one who made it all funny. It's like irreverent and you've got the... Yeah. yeah. I, once I read Troll Bridge, I wanted to write. I remember being like, I want to do what he just did. It's interesting, you know, I'm thinking about like the stand-up analogy. Just, you know, when you think of like older people like telling that story and you're like, here comes this part. Like, you know, you've heard it in your family, but it is like a bit, Yeah, you know, <laughs> worked on that story's been told. And as a kid, you're like, oh, I'm telling this one again, you know, <laughs> but, but it's like, you know, it's coming and you wait for everybody to laugh or whatever at that moment. And it is very much like a little routine or sometimes not a good one, but still they're telling the story again in their mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They all, I mean, they have their punchlines and their kind of format and yeah, I love it. I love it. Written stories hadn't done that for me until then. I am not a glass maker, nor a stone cutter, nor a goldsmith, potter, weaver, tinker, scribe, or chef. He shouted happily, and he leaped up and bounded down the steep stone stairs. Nor a vinter, carpenter, physician, armorer, astronomer, baker, or boatman. 
Down and around he ran as fast as he could go along the palace corridors until he reached the room in which all his old things had been stored. Nor a blacksmith, merchant, musician, or cabinet maker, he continued, as he put on the ragged cloak and shoes and hat. Nor a wise man or a fool, success or failure, for no one but myself can tell me what I am or what I am not. That was from Norton Jester's short story, Albrecht the Wise, first published in 1965. Albrecht, who has spent years wandering unsatisfied from one job to another, likewise rejects the role of village wise man and decides to resume wandering, possibly a purpose in and of itself. Now, most of the authors on this show read us passages that they really identify with, but Daniel doesn't necessarily like Albrecht's approach. In fact, when he read this story as a student, he felt like Albrecht, in hunting for his true passion, had kind of gotten it all wrong. In one of the programs that my mom put me in that I will forever be grateful is um, Junior Great Books. They're full of these you know, short stories, a lot of them classics, some of them like The Brave Little Tailor and The Three Little Pigs, but some of them just off the beaten path kind of stuff. And what you would do is you, you were supposed to read these and then one recess every month you would go into a teacher's classroom and it was kind of like a book club for kids, right? You would read the short story and then come and you'd sit down and you'd talk about it. And it was the first time I ever got the experience of having those kind of deeper talks, you know, with anyone about a story. And, the te- and it, you know, it was a good, I had a particularly good teacher and she would ask just one more question, like what made him so brave or what made him so clever or what, what is it that you like? Right, right. Sounds like a good teacher. <laughs> so this story by Norton Juster is from Junior Great Books. And what did you take from it, you know, having this new kind of analyzing skill that you did? I think one of the first things was that he realized very quickly that, or in the story, that he had been affecting his judgment of what would be a worthy pursuit based on how good he was at it as opposed to how much usefulness he might derive from it. My perspective of that story is sort of, you know, his purpose in life, he's a character who's looking for his purpose, will not be derived from which he loves the most. You know, it's not going to be a a case of, you know, my hot take is always like, don't follow your dreams if that's the only thing you're doing. You know, ask yourself, what will make you most useful? What will make you most, you know, in terms of a purpose, help you do meaningful work, work that will have a good effect, whether in your family or your community, for yourself, for, for your surroundings and your loved ones, right? So... In a lot of ways, it's sort of Albrecht is kind of beginning with this me first question, right? Well, I love stone cutting. Let me go, let me go look at that. And he does it and it's good. There's nothing, there's nothing unsatisfying about becoming a good stone cutter, but ultimately it's not fulfilling a need in him to be purposeful and useful. And so I thought, uh, yeah, it was an early, t- it was one of those early looks at needing to look beyond myself and beyond my own interests or anything like that necessarily and asking like, how do you acquire a purpose? Mm, And did that really connect with you? Like, did you feel like purpose was a really important part of your life growing up? When you say a phrase like purpose, sometimes it makes people think of um, like dystopian YA where some committee somewhere at some reaping or choosing or giving or tribing will 
tell you your purpose in a society and then you're like, oh no, I'm the tax accountant for our dystopian society. And you're like, but I'm, but I'm so cute and there's two boys after me, so I have to become a rebel. <laughs> um, but Right, right, right. <laughs> Um, joke. I love those stories. I just, it's, you know, we, we laugh, you know, and, and I, and for what it's worth in, in traditions that we kind of also question sometimes where you're told the exactitude of your purpose, that is un, uninteresting to me. And what exactly is your purpose is of course, the external world is going to have almost no clue what yours will be. I'll try to be specific because I might be dealing in abstractions. You know, I I knew that in my heart, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a storyteller. Like that had been given to me, whether that was the circumstances of being raised around some of these storytellers and stories that I just said, or whether because it's some, you know, it was a, a great calling or my fate, whatever we want to say about it. But then of course, past that is what is the effect of that purpose and what is the method? What is the, what are you doing with your skill set? I would ask this question of someone who's calling is to make Fabergé eggs. It's not, yeah. this isn't just for writers. Um, stories like Albrecht the Wise, I think, help us disentangle those two. You know, well, my mom says I'm a, I should be a doctor, so that's my purpose. It's like, well, Albrecht here is starting to actually ask himself these questions of the difference between your vocation and your obligation. If we can just rise to the challenge of communication here in the parlor of your mind, we can maybe reach across time and space and every ordinary thing to see so deep into the heart of each other that you might agree that I am like you. That's a quote from Daniel's memoir, Everything Sad is Untrue. And it's a nice summation of what he considers his own purpose, not the purpose of simply writing stories, his vocation, but the impact that the words have on those who read them his obligation. Exploring the intimate relationship between author and audience was the next step in his journey. Yeah, so that passage is to me in some ways reacting to this um, phrase I heard when I was uh, in college, right? Which was the author inhabits the reader. And, you know, when you pull that phrase apart a little bit, right, it's thinking about the idea of like, the author is quite literally putting words in the reader's mouth. They are going into this book and listening to this person quite passively. They don't get to speak back. And that's a big theme in this book, that they are being forced to listen. And that's the nature of every written story, that the author is going to inhabit the reader. And I think that's a really fertile theme. By the way, I think that's why like people will throw a book across the room sometimes. When you are finally fed up with having to listen and to be inhabited by someone, not even necessarily the narrator, but with it by an author that you start to feel is misusing his or her privilege to be in your head, you forcefully kick them out, right? And... I think that's a really powerful vision that people have, especially readers. People who've read a lot of books have done this more, obviously. And they know that they're selecting authors to come into their mind. My narrator calls it the parlor of your mind. And the reason he does that is because he's conflating a different theme in that book, which is, of course, immigration and refugees. They also come into your country, right? They come into your community, into your spaces. And he's very cognizant as a writer, as a storyteller, of wanting to assure you that he's going to come in and he's going to be a good guest. 
Like he doesn't know how to tell stories. He actually doesn't even know how to be a citizen. He's just, he's a kid, but he has this sort of deep anxiety of wanting to be in a harmonious relationship with you, the reader, wanting to like please you, wanting to like entertain, but also wanting to be welcome. And it's really, really important to him that he be at the end of all this welcomed by the reader Clearly, this is like a young refugee kid, you know, reflecting those same ideas about immigration, wanting to be welcome in Oklahoma and those kinds. Later in the story, he says a line that says, you know, every story is the sound of a storyteller begging to stay alive. Because he's starting to put all of this theme into crystal clarity for the reader, which is you are deeply powerful. You can throw me across the room anytime you want. You can pay me no attention and effectively kill me as a narrator, but even as an author, right? Like I am just like overjoyed anytime I get letters from readers. It's challenging. I, I'm not great at email. I'm not great at writing. And not, you know, and each of them is a challenge for me to write back to. And yet I'm overjoyed because fundamentally these are all my bosses. Like these are the only people who are ever going to give me the opportunity to write more and publish more books. Yeah. I mean, you clearly feel this sense of responsibility. And like you said, there's this obligation to do right by your readers. And I'd love it if you could talk more about the purpose behind your writing and some of those specific responsibilities that you feel as an author. You know, a recent story I just wrote was called um, The Many Assassinations of Samir, the Seller of Dreams. And it's set on the Silk Road. And it's about this young monk, this boy who is asking all the big questions. And he's also realizing that his master, this Samir, the Seller of Dreams, is kind of a huckster. He's a con artist. He's a, this merchant who tricks people. And there's a scene that I really thought was a centerpiece of the story, which is where he's trying to describe to this blacksmith and his daughter one of the questions, the mysteries of his young life. And he's describing these two birds and they were in love with each other. And one of the bird dies. And the second bird is so distraught that he dies the next day. And he is stuck with this question, this little boy, which is what did that second bird lose, right? What did he lose that was so much more powerful than life and death that upon losing it, he just gave up the ghost? And the blacksmith's like, who's a kind of a cynical comedic character is like, well, what do you think it was? And the boy is forced to say the thing that every author is loath to do, which is like, well, what's the answer then? And the answer always, of course, it has to be love, right? And so this little boy, very naive, doesn't worry about cliche, just says it. He's like, well, I think what he lost was love. And the blacksmith just laughs in his face. <laughs> and, and the reason he laughs in his face is because as adults, we've become immune to these like simple truths, right? We are bored by them. What we call them cliches. We think they're so below us. But that is the simple truth in this little boy, this little monk's life. I think an author's job in some ways is to find a way to remystify a lot of these these things that we have become bored by, the simple truths that we have. A uh, was Alexander Pope who describes poetry as uh, true wit is nature to advantage dressed. What oft was thought, but never so well expressed. Which you know, what often was thought, but never so well expressed, is what he thinks is true wit. And it's true. We've all had love in our lives. We've all had heartbreak. We've all had that funny moment, whatever it might be. But a writer's job is to make it such that it was never so well expressed, this common 
thing. So to remystify the world in some ways, I think, you know, we live in the information age. We live in an age where very few people want to live in mystery. Like if you're in a restaurant with somebody and you ask, everything feels knowable. It's so knowable. And it's so, and unfortunately (laughs) it's so boring. Like sometimes, you know, um, one of my favorite games at like a restaurant is to ask a question that's kind of slightly, slightly stupid, right? Something like, why do cherries come in twos? Like what? What's up with that? So that, who can? Who's going to pick up their phone and? Yeah, Google but and it everyone does. Everyone is like, well, we don't. <laughs> their immediate move is to, well, let me get the supercomputer out of my pocket and I'll find out for you. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You tell me what you think. Like you tell, and uh, and that's when it's really fun because you're like, oh, all this time you've <laughs> yeah. offloaded the world and the mystery and and curiosity into this little box. Is that cherries coming in two one one that you actually? I don't. know. I just came up with it. <laughs> now I'm thinking about it. But okay, all right, go ahead. It's, such, it's a good one, right? I don't actually know. There's probably some some <laughs> you know reason with the, with the golden ratio or something. Who knows? But I think about these kinds of things and these moments as what if we let ourselves live in mystery just a little bit? I don't need the Wikipedia on plant growth patterns. I really just want to think about the fact that maybe those cherries are in love. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, who knows? Just leave me to my ungoogled mystery, please. The the metaphor you'd have to use is like signal to noise ratio, right? I think the I guess what I'm trying to say isn't that I'm anti information. I just think there's a lot of noise in that kind of space, and I enjoy a quieter, sometimes more mystified space. Obviously, at the end of the dinner, I'm if there's a real question, it's glorious that we can all pull out a computer and ask ours. You know. <laughs> answer, the actual scientific answer. Yeah, you can check our show notes for why cherries grow in (laughs) pairs. Um, Because they love each other. You already answered this. (laughs) All right, all right, sorry. They're best friends. Uh, um, I wonder about um, schools and students and like how some of your works, I don't know if you've been able to do any visits. I know that when Everything Sad is Untrue came out, it like debuted and it was COVID, right? So that you probably didn't get to do as many visits, I'm guessing. So I don't know, between either of these beautiful books, like did you ever, have you had any experiences, interactions with kids that are memorable, one or two that really stand out for you? Yeah, my favorite thing, I love it when, yes, I've gotten to go to a lot of schools and my favorite thing about everything sad students or readers is how many of them are like, well, I'm starting to write my memoir now. And I always find it so delightful because, you know, you'll have a, sometimes a sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader, and they're starting to say that. And it's delightful because at first we think like, haha, they've only been alive for 14 years. But what I love about it, in fact, is that not only is it an incredibly great project to take on, but what they end up being is the chronicler for their family. Because the first task, I, you know, one, one thing I always tell them is like, cool, I have a, a little thing I do called a one-page memoir with my students when I come to visit. And it's exactly that. It's tell me a memory, it's just one memory, where you had, you know, other people were there. Okay, tell me what happened. Just who, what, where, why, when. Nothing too complicated. Tell me, but you know, make it an event. Don't be alone in the woods. Have it be like a Fourth of July celebration, somebody's bar mitzvah, whatever. And now go to someone else. So that that evening, their homework is to go someone else who was in that memory and just read them your memory and see what they say. And they do. And every day, the next day, it's a workshop. The next day, I come back and I'm like, did anybody have anybody anything weird happen? 
And I can't tell you how many times someone will raise their hand and be like, yeah, my dad said that that wasn't even my memory. It was my grandma and I just thought it was mine. And I, it was just a family story that I thought I had lived. And I'll be like, what? <laughs> I mean, these giant <laughs> things, like not small um, gaps and reversals and people just, everybody remembers things completely differently. And so to begin asking the questions about, you know, where their family, you know, comes from, what they value, who they are. I just love that stuff. So yeah, that's my favorite. Just when people start going into their own. And a lot of them will write to me and tell me. Like I get these long, long emails that are like, yeah, they're family histories. They, like they're giving you their memoir? Like they're telling you their yeah, memoir? they will give me a lot of stuff. And it's, it's hard to write back because you can't just write back like, cool, thanks for reading. Very good. <laughs> like, you have to engage. You have to, you have to be Excellent like, work. hey, that's amazing that you found that out. About your uncle or... Yeah, you're an editor and a public... Yeah, that's like your trade, right? You can't even begin. Like, what will you do with... Yeah, Yeah, the jerk version of me just sends back like a thumbs up emoji. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good, good job. (laughs) We've already been given a peek of a few of the upcoming stories from Daniel, but the man has been busy and he's got a few more to tease. It's funny the way publishing kind of has uh, moved in because moved meaning like after COVID things like slowed down a little bit and something sped up. And so a lot of the picture book stuff had slowed down and now they're all like lined up. So it's all they're all coming out in succession, which is exciting. But I'll, I'll be doing several picture books coming up. One of them is a memory of this Ferris wheel in the desert, the storyteller. And it's very much a story within a story. So you, it's my story going to that man's house. And then we jump into the fairy tale and the art style changes. I'm really excited about that. And then we're doing um, another picture book about Persian carpets and the weaving of those. Um, Another one that's not Persian at all. It's almost a little bit like a Legend of Zelda kind of vibe. It's actually a picture book that's entirely a palindrome visually. So, oh, really? Yeah, what? the boy like goes down into this, you know, he starts in the dark woods and then goes and he's going down further and further into these like landscapes and places until final dungeon, this decrepit castle where he comes across this monster that he's been fearing this whole time. And then and then he goes back up and the whole book is a perfect palindrome. So you could like take the middle pages, hold them up and look at each of the two paired spreads and they, they like they go forward and backward and it's it was a real puzzle. That's awesome. <laughs> to put together. Yeah, I was say, how'd you write that? <laughs> yeah, it's called Drawn Onward, which is itself a palindrome. Now, we've talked a lot about storytelling, the purpose of storytelling, and why it's important to make the cliche or overdone interesting again. That's something that Daniel has been thinking a lot about recently. So much so that he has another upcoming project dissecting just that. I have a book coming out called How to Tell a Story. It's actually a revision of a project I had done that was really interactive with blocks and with for kids. And I had sort of, someone had said, have you ever thought about writing a How to Tell a Story just for a general audience, for adults as just a book? And I said, no, but that's a great idea. So, so I've been working on that and nonfiction about storytelling was has been fun. Yeah, that seems it probably gives you a very different perspective on thinking about how you think about an analytical lens and how you're thinking about storytelling. Yeah, instead of a different view. And it's really hard to answer this question. Like, this is a question I've always wanted to try to answer: how to be interesting. Like, how does anything be interesting? 
is one of those, like you can either become very abstract when you say something like that, or you can become really specific and formal. So you'll see some storytelling books and they're like, well, how to be interesting is to follow three act structure and you have to follow this template and this, or they'll say stuff that's really sort of broad and trying to answer that question without limiting the writer or the, the reader in this case, who's wanting to be a writer. How do you make sure you're not just being one of these people who's like pitching a formula while at the same time, like offering something tangible that's like this, let us explore how to tell something in an interesting way. That was a proper difficult <laughs> challenge. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, okay, lastly, I know you're working on something else that's far outside the realm of picture books or books, period. Can you tell me about your endeavor on the big screen? Yeah, I'm working on, I just finished a feature film I, I wrote that may be coming out early next year called Reentry. It's a sci-fi romance about a woman whose um, husband is an ex-astronaut and he gets recruited to be one the first to walk through this dimensional portway. It's like the early days of multiverse theory. We've got all kinds of multiverse movies. Uh, this is like, yeah. we need a Neil Armstrong. You're going to walk through. It'll be like 10 seconds. It'll be no problem. And then you'll be back home. And she says to him, um, you know, don't do it. I have a really horrible feeling about this. And he sort of brushes it off, um, you know, to his own chagrin because, you know, the movie begins with her watching as he's about to step through, you know, T minus five seconds. He steps through, he disappears. So the music comes on. This is the very beginning of the movie. And we watch her have to go to his funeral and mourn him and put her life back together over the course of a year. And... Um, as the year comes to a close and as the song comes to an end, we flip back to the lab, the lights come back on and he walks right back through the door. And so for him, it's been 10 seconds and for her, it's been the worst year of her life. And the rest is the sort of marriage story about what do you do when you have had that kind of rift between you? You wrote the film, you're- I was the writer and producer. And you have this production company That's now? That's right. And it's, it's called Plot Knot, which is P-L-O-T-N-A-U-T and- um, it's doing that film next year and two books, and we're publishing books and film and TV at the same time. So, yeah, I'm really excited about the venture. I really, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. Films are very, very different. <laughs> so, For his reading challenge, Wise Shorts, Daniel takes inspiration from his earlier reading of Albrecht the Wise. Despite the story's brevity, it had a lasting effect on Daniel. And now, with our work and life load in mind, he challenges us to explore the power of words in a nice, concise format. The easiest thing to get a group of people to read, and because you go to any book club, and I'm telling you, there's like three people who are pretending, they're trying to look at the book while you're talking, and you're like, you didn't read this. <laughs> I know you didn't read this. And now you're trying to catch up <laughs> while we're in the book club. And it's unacceptable. Uh, so I've, I've been yes. before. Yeah, so I went with the short stories. Short stories that I think are really interesting to discuss. Obviously, Alberic the Wise by Norton Juster is on the list. But, you know, the greatest American short story writer, uh, Shirley Jackson, she's got to be on the list. There's all kinds of them. Today's Beanstack featured librarian is one of my closest friends growing up, Nikki Hader. She's the library manager at the Franklin Avenue Library in Des Moines, Iowa, my hometown. Nikki tells us about a program that highlights the deep impact libraries have on their communities. One of the services that we've recently started to provide because there is such a food insecurity 
issue in our community is we have a community fridge um, that is accessible to the public when the library is open. There is a merchandiser fridge and a pantry that we stock through donations. And also we have some pretty phenomenal relationships with agencies in the community that do food recovery. It'll be a year in December, and it's been kind of mind-blowing to see the response. It's also been probably, I think, one of the things that we've done recently that's closest to the parts of our staff because they see the impact. But one of the other things we've been doing is we've been getting out to all of the second grade classrooms in our service area just to spread the love of breeding, to engage with kids and teachers and really just support teachers as well. One of the things Miss Erica, our outreach librarian, does is when she's in that classroom is she mentions the fridge. Um, we know that kids talk about what they hear at school and what they learn at school with their families. And so it's just another way to spread awareness. And she has been amazed at how many children have raised their hands and said, we use the fridge, like no stigma. Just we come after school on this, this, and this day. But we know that like kids can't learn, right? If they're hungry. This has been The Reading Culture and you've been listening to our conversation with Daniel Nayiri. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie. And currently I'm reading Amina's Voice by Hina Khan and Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Detterer. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please show some love and give us a five-star review. It just takes a second and it really helps. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and bonus content. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.